Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to Mod Path Chat. My guest today is Dr. Benjamin Calhoun, Director of Breast Pathology and Anatomic Pathology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Calhoun will be discussing his recently published article from our newly launched Modern Pathology series on controversial issues uh, in the field. The issue at hand today will be the evidence for and against immediate excision of uh, lesions that are deemed to be high risk or benign breast lesions diagnosed on core biopsies of the breast. Thank you, Ben, for accepting my invitation. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to submit the article and to join you today. Wonderful. Uh, this is uh, such a, an important topic, and I'm so glad we got the opportunity uh, to do it. So before we uh, talk about uh, the details of, of uh, what you're finding from, uh, from uh, the review uh, of the literature and, and uh, which side of the argument uh, you, you would think we should land on, frame, frame the issue. Why is this a controversy? Why is that important? I think that uh, the excision of screen-detected lesions associated with breast cancer risk and certain other benign lesions is an evolving area in multidisciplinary breast care. And in the past, we had a lot of evidence, mainly from um, single institution and retrospective studies, suggesting that upgrade rates were quite high, that if we took these patients to surgery, we would find DCIS or invasive carcinoma in the area near the biopsy site. Uh, as time has gone on and uh, case definitions have been refined, the definition of upgrades have been refined, and the evidence base has grown, upgrade rates have come down. Uh, and uh, we're at a point uh, now, I think, in the development of the uh, evidence in the peer-reviewed literature where it's, uh, it's a good time to ask, uh, is excision mandatory for all of these lesions? Mm -hmm. So, so just just an example. What kind of lesions are we talking? We'll go in details in a second. But for example, ADH. So we mainly focused on atypical ductal hyperplasia, atypical lobular hyperplasia, and classic type lobular carcinoma in situ. So excluding the variants of fluorid and pleomorphic LCIS. Mm -hmm. uh, benign concordant intraductal papillomas and radial scars without atypia. Okay. So benign concordant, uh, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, I'm not, I don't do breast every day, so I'm going to learn from this. Uh, so yeah, what is, uh, so let's, let's, let's go through what is some of the, you mentioned one of the evidence that seems to be evolving in terms of upgrading the risk, meaning the ADH end up being invasive or being DCIS, something like that, right? Right. And then the, with the example of ADH, uh, for instance, many of those upgrades are DCIS, although there are some invasive upgrades, which is a concern. Um, and ADH uh, is, is a lesion that um, has a higher upgrade rate than the others that we'll discuss. And um, there's still some evidence to suggest that um, it may be wise to uh, excise all, all cases of ADH diagnosed on core needle biopsy. One of the 
paradoxical things about that practice for right now is there are, I think, four active surveillance trials for low-risk DCIS, depending on how that's defined, where patients are being offered surveillance instead of immediate surgical excision. So we find ourselves at a moment where we might do surgery for ADH uh, for every patient with ADH, and we may not do surgery for every patient with ductal carcinoma in situ. And so that's a, a little bit of an interesting paradox in our current practice. I mean, those are trials still. Those haven't come into mainstream practice. but And, and based on these trials. So so uh, I guess uh, you list a, a great table, table one, that our audience uh, should really uh, read in detail. Uh, but you have a list of uh, uh, four immediate resection and a list of uh, issues that are against immediate uh, excision, right? And uh, so can we, uh, can you just touch upon a few of these? Uh, we already talked about the likelihood of upgrade that seems to be going down. You list uh, with the newer studies, uh, it is really, uh, less than 5% as opposed to before it was higher. But what else uh, should, should our audience be aware of? Well, if we come back to the definition of upgrade just for a moment, uh, in some papers, upgrades were defined as um, developing in, uh, invasive carcinoma or ductal carcinoma in situ. In other papers on benign lesions like papillomas, um, if there were another um, lesion found in the excision specimen that's associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, say ADH or ALH, that was counted as an upgrade because those patients may be offered chemo prevention and high-risk follow-up. Um, one of the things that uh, seems to be fairly clear in the literature right now is the rate of uptake of chemo prevention in that patient population with those lesions is fairly low. And so the argument is to excise one non-malignant lesion to possibly find another non-malignant lesion. And it's not clear uh, what the benefit of doing that really is in daily practice. Um, in theory, some of those patients may benefit from chemo prevention, but it's not clear how many of them uh, take and adhere to. Uh, chemo prevention. Very interesting. That 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 makes sense. That that second lesion that you may find, and uh, what does it uh, imply in terms of treatment and adherence to? So, uh, but but there are also you mentioned in the uh, for and against that that really the ones that are for our studies that are retrospective and and smaller versus the the others. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So, and I think the, um, there um, have only been a few re uh, prospective studies which we cite in the paper, some of which are from the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium on papillomas and lobular neoplasia. And then there are single institution prospective uh, studies uh, from MD Anderson and from Emory where the multidisciplinary team gets together, they define their criteria for who may be offered surveillance, and then they've published the follow-up from those cases and shown very low rates of development of carcinoma or upgrade uh, at the time of a subsequent biopsy, um, as opposed to the older studies. And I've written papers like this too, where you just look back through your own experience at your own institution and you see how many cases you've had and how many were upgraded. Um, one of the things that makes it difficult to interpret that part of the literature is the criteria for uh, taking patients to surgery are not always well-defined. And the follow-up data for the patients who were not offered surgery is not always provided. So it's very difficult to get around selection bias in those studies. Uh, so I think that um, what we need are more prospectively designed and ideally multi-institutional studies similar to the TBCRC studies that we cite in the paper. Another thing that I think people may not um, always appreciate um, 
And this point has been made by a breast surgeon at, uh, at Cornell named Jennifer Marty in some of her publications is that when we say that a patient might not have an immediate surgical excision, that does not mean that she would never have surgery. It just means that it's not going to happen immediately. Uh, those patients can be brought back for imaging and clinical exam in six months. They could have a biopsy then. They could have uh, surgery uh, if needed at that time. So um, her suggestion, and we uh, we hit this idea a little bit in the review, is that it's more of a delayed surgery than saying someone's never going to have surgery. And of course, um, all of this is is based on the idea that these patients will follow up. Um, so for, for this to work, uh, the patients have to be uh, willing to follow up and um, we have to think about how much anxiety maybe this produces for some patients knowing they're being followed for a lesion that is associated with some risk of the development of breast cancer as well. Yes, yeah, so uh, which leads to, yes, if you do the excision, you're probably over treating. Uh, but I guess the argument there is that uh, a lot of these patients, because it sounds like the surveillance is, is active surveillance, similar to what we do in prostate cancer, for example. So it's not just, I will watch you go for a few years and come back. Uh, so uh, the adherence to that, I guess, is, is what makes the argument, well, my patient may not come back. I may lose this patient by the time you come back. It's already too late. I think that's a big concern. You know, I think the big concern um, and the argument for excision is that we may be underestimating malignancy in some of these instances and, and uh, people are not comfortable with that. I think that the way the literature has evolved is that the number of uh, instances in which that happens in carefully defined subsets of patients is actually starting to be quite low. So the, the two TBCRC studies, you know, showed uh, that um, only around uh, 3% of patients in their uh, met eligibility criteria for those trials uh, developed or a, a carcinoma or uh, were upgraded at excision. And that's relatively similar to the rate of uh, subsequent upgrade for patients with a BIRADS category three lesion. And all of those patients are offered uh, imaging follow-up at six months. So really, the findings of these lesions doesn't doesn't in reality imply higher risk if you just put them on surveillance. And there are there are a few caveats with that. I mean, some of the, some of those studies have uh, maybe two year follow up. Some have longer follow up. Um, so it's you know it's in the near term, um, but they do have very good follow up for the patients who've had subsequent biopsies and excisions. I want to circle back and you touch uh, upon that, that it's the index site and and how close uh, the proximity, because uh, when you do the excision, it's not always that easy to, you see the lesion where the core came and uh, from, but so can you elaborate a little bit, were you considered part of the index site or not and too far? So that's, that's an important point. And I think the, the some of the publications from the group at MD Anderson really, really highlight this, that um, some, uh, if you follow patients over time, some of the subsequent carcinomas that are developed are not near the area of the biopsy site. So that would argue against um, the value of doing an, a local excision in that area because that's not where the cancer developed. Um, there, there we, they do see some cancers develop near the index site, but the rate of that is actually very low in carefully defined uh, patient populations. So, and then when you say it's in different areas, how far? I mean, because that's that must have been included in the excisional biopsy, which usually is not that large, right? Most of the time. 
Right. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, another quadrant usually would be, uh, I think that we would be comfortable saying that that's not near the index site. Or some, some of the papers are quite detailed and actually have, you know, roughly how many centimeters away from the biopsy site the subsequent uh, carcinoma was found. Anything special about any of the other lesions that you mentioned that are included in the study, ALH, uh, LCIS, classic LCIS, and what have you? Is there anything different than the ADH or the same statements? So I think I think the rest of them are actually fairly different from ADH in terms of both their historical upgrade rates and what we think their contemporary upgrade rates are. Uh, so uh, we've seen the, the the upgrade rate for ADH is summarized in the current edition of the WHO as I want to say something like 18 to 20 percent. And some of those upgrades are invasive. Um, the other for, that's uh, much less true for the other lesions. Um, more often than not, in carefully conducted studies, some of the uh, upgrades are DCIS uh, and the rate of upgrade is much lower, single digits under 5 percent. So ADH is still um, in a category by itself, I think. And uh, which which reminds me, like uh, when you say the upgrade, that I guess within a short, this is an upgrade that is not biologic because it's usually within a short time frame, right? You do the needle and then you do the excision, uh, as opposed to the studies of surveillance. That's where you really can can make a decision. You waited a year and two years and the lesion popped up in a different place uh, versus is it the same lesion developed into a worse lesion, correct? Yes. So I think, you know, what, what we are uh, doing with when we do the surgical excision is we're trying to find a synchronous cancer that's okay. in the same area. And then when we conduct the follow-up studies, um, depending on where it develops, it could be a metachronous uh, tumor in another site. But that's the, the, the main concern is underestimation of a, of a synchronous carcinoma in the vicinity of the core biopsy site. And for that, what do you think the best approach is? You know, some people say that you should excise because the concern is worrisome enough. I'd rather over three than some people seem to say no, continue on surveillance, active surveillance. And even if you find it, it's a very low rate. So what, which side would you lean on? So I, I generally lean uh, toward thinking that we should be doing less um, immediate surgical excisions for many of these lesions. I just think we have to be really careful with our patient selection. And I think that what we really need to focus on are screen-detected, non-palpable lesions that are not symptomatic. Um, and there are probably some other criteria that we can introduce. But one of the issues with the upgrade literature is that cases that were, say, BIRADS Category 5 or palpable or the patient was symptomatic, it was an enlarging mass or something like that, they were included in the studies and some of them were counted as upgrades. It, today, we would no longer regard those as true upgrades. Those are not the kinds of cases we're talking about. Um, so I think... Um, it's really the screen detected non-palpable lesions and, and trying to figure out what to do with those. And I believe that the balance of the evidence is, is accumulating to, to say that not all of those patients need immediate surgical excision. So a patient-centric, and I'm reading, uh, quoting your words in, in the abstract, patient-centric multidisciplinary approach that moves away from this reflexive yes-no. Right. So for every case, the team, the multidisciplinary team may weigh in and, and make a decision. Is this somebody we can sit on with active surveillance or not? Is that what you're... And I think that's what's happening at a lot of institutions right now. And I think the, the next step is to try to standardize the criteria for selecting those patients. 
so the, and, and that's going to be um, difficult probably. But one of the things that, that um, we often think about in breast pathology is that we go to tumor boards for patients who already have cancer or who have metastatic uh, carcinoma. But we don't do, in many institutions, there are some exceptions to this, but for most of us, we don't attend a similar conference where we go through careful radiologic pathologic correlation and decide which patients are going to have surgery after uh, diagnosis of a non-malignant lesion on core needle biopsy. Um, so some of the data that we cite comes out of conferences like that that are held at places like MD Anderson and Emory are a couple of examples. Um, but it's not done everywhere. And even when it's done, it's not clear that the criteria are consistently applied across institutions. So we probably need some consensus guidelines uh, that are specific to each lesion and the data relevant to those lesions and that provide some clarity. We have some consensus statements from some national societies, but they are um, intentionally, I think, uh, vague and uh, leave a lot of wiggle room. And I think may maybe the next step is to, uh, to tighten those up a little bit and see if we can increase standardization. And, and then you can, you can have enough experience uh, prospectively and comparing apple to apple and, and hopefully uh, end up with some concrete recommendations. And, and I, I, it's just from, it's anecdotally from, from our own institution. Uh, it sometimes depends on the surgeon between a complex sclerosing lesion. Uh, so some of us will call a, you know, a radial scar if, if it's not exactly part of complex, call it that. So if you bottom line it as this, uh, management is different than if you come out and just say radial scar for certain surgeons, but not for all of them, uh, which to me, that here's a lot of inconsistency within the same institution. And to follow up on your point, uh, we are now being asked to go to the imaging. Uh, so we're part of the multidisciplinary team or pathologist, breast pathologist, uh, not for the already diagnosed breast cancer, like you were just saying. And I think that's that's a positive development because otherwise they're just reading our report uh, and making their own uh, interpretation and having the pathologist there, uh, maybe that can help with that multidisciplinary patient-centric approach that you're referring to. I think so. And I, I think that, um, you know, and radiological pathological correlation is really critical is a really critical part of this. Um, and that's another thing that's been, you know, variable uh, in the literature, not recently, but, but, but in the past, that was not always a, a, a key component of the uh, publications grabbing upgrade rates. And so um, over time though, it's become much more consistent for papers to include radiological pathological correlation to exclude you know, BIRADS-5 lesions and palpable lesions and really kind of refine the upgrade rate for screen-detected lesions. Because it, this was beyond the scope of our review, but I, and I think you alluded to this earlier, you know, it's possible that sending all of these patients to surgery could constitute a, a harm from screening, potentially. So we ideally we would try to refine things such that those who need surgery have it, but if the majority don't need to go to the operating room immediately, that we would uh, continue to follow them. So uh, let's close by uh, talking about Elysian, what's becoming really uh 
to me, at least, I see a lot of discussion. Anytime you have an intraductal papillary lesion, a little atypia or not, is it uh, DCIS? Anything papillary seems on needle biopsy scare uh, pathologists. But here we're talking about intraductal papilloma. So uh, a couple of words about that. What do you think, uh, which side of the argument will fall in terms of surveillance versus you should take it out? So I think the best evidence that we have right now is for um, Introductal papillomas without atypia, benign papillomas, that are considered radiologically concordant by the breast radiologist. Uh, I think uh, that's the subset that's been best studied in some of the single institution studies, showing very low upgrade rates. And that's also the uh, same subset of papillary lesions that was looked at uh, in TBCRC 34 and showed a very low uh, upgrade rate. So um, those are the papillomas, uh, the papillary lesions that we're really talking about is a benign concordant introductal papillomas. Um, I like any, that. Anything that's atypical or, you know, it can't be characterized or classified on corneal biopsy due to limited sampling, fragmentation, et cetera, that might be a, a different issue. Correct. And, and it has to be concordant with the radiology, their, their clinical impression too. That's 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 good to know. Well, thank you. This is uh, uh, I want to thank you for the podcast, but I also want to thank you for this uh, great article that I, I find it uh, raised a lot of issues, and I'm sure is going to uh, lead to uh, encouragement of more prospective studies. To uh, and that's the whole idea from this series. You know, what are the issues where uh, young uh, pathologists like yourself, brilliant pathologists, should should help uh, a patient care by finding the uh, the golden truth right and uh, by doing prospective studies that are well designed so thank you very much it's been uh, a pleasure to have you here dr Cajon. Uh thank you it's been a pleasure any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology springer nature uab or uscap your modpath chat host and scientific director is dr george netto Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.